podcasting from Dallas, Texas. I am Shireen, and this is the Yumlish Podcast. Yumlish is working to empower you to take charge of your health through diet and exercise and reduce the risk of chronic conditions like type 2 diabetes and heart disease. We hope to share a unique perspective and a culturally relevant approach to managing these chronic conditions with you each week. In today's episode, we are in conversation with Dr. Rana Malik, who discusses the topic of prediabetes in women's health. She provides valuable insights into the causes of prediabetes, explores the relationship between prediabetes and metabolic syndrome, and sheds light on the potential reversibility of prediabetes. Join us as we dive deeper into these intriguing aspects and more with Dr. Malik. Dr. Malik is an associate professor of endocrinology at University of Maryland School of Medicine, where her clinical work is focused on type 1 and type 2 diabetes and hormonal and metabolic health for women, including gestational diabetes, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and primary ovarian insufficiency. She is also responsible for training the next generation of endocrinologists as a program director for the Endocrinology Fellowship. Welcome, Dr. Malik. Thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure having you on. Dr. Malik, diving right in, would love to start out and just if you can walk us through your journey as to what made you want to become an endocrinologist and what do you find to be the most fulfilling aspect in your career? Yeah, that's a great question. I didn't know when I went into medicine I wanted to be an endocrinologist, but when I was doing my residency training in Atlanta, what I came to realize is that most of the patients I saw in the hospital had one unifying diagnosis, and that was diabetes. So patients that were there for heart attacks or kidney disease or vascular problems, it was always diabetes that was the primary cause. And I thought it would be a really interesting way to try to get ahead of the problem. If you could do good diabetes care, maybe you could prevent those downstream complications. I also really liked it because it was a chance to work with patients over time. And that's what I think is the most fulfilling aspect of being an endocrinologist. When you do chronic disease management, you get to see the same patients over and over again. And I have some patients that I see religiously every three months for half an hour. And I have friends I don't see that often. And so we become a part of each other's lives. We celebrate, you know, weddings and graduations and births and and mourn deaths. And it is such a wonderful field to be in. And I really enjoy that part of it. You talked about that underlying, you know, metabolics. And you talked about diabetes Mm -hmm. in particular. I I want to take a step back from diabetes and jump actually into pre-diabetes. And there's always sort of that misunderstanding understanding around diabetes, prediabetes. Can we first start out with establishing what exactly prediabetes mm-hmm. is? So in a nutshell, it is it means you're at high risk for developing diabetes. But there are really specific definitions for it. And so it's blood work that you would have probably had done at your doctor's office. So it's looking at your blood sugar when you haven't eaten overnight. And if your fasting blood sugar is more than 100, you have prediabetes. There is something called an 
a hemoglobin A1C, which is an average of your blood sugars over the last two to three months. And if it's between 5.7 to 6.4, it means you have prediabetes. And then less commonly done is, in, is a glucose tolerance test where you have to drink a really syrupy drink of 75 grams of, of glucose. And two hours after that, if your blood sugar is between 140 to 199, that meets the definition of prediabetes. So any one of those gives you that diagnosis and it means that you're at higher risk of developing diabetes. So it doesn't mean it's your destiny, but if nothing else changes over the next five years, you are three times more likely to develop diabetes than someone who doesn't have prediabetes. And now if I am someone who wants to know if I am at risk, what do I do when I go talk to my doctor? If I do have some recent blood work, what are numbers I should mm -hmm. look for? So if you had blood work where you hadn't eaten overnight and your glucose on the blood test is more than 100, and but less than 126, that would be something to discuss with your doctor. You're looking at an hemoglobin A1C level of between 5.6 to 6.4%. It's less likely that you would have had a glucose tolerance test, but again, if you did and it, your sugar two hours later was 140 to 199, those are all things that you really kind of want to look at and have a conversation with your doctor about what do you do now? How do you reduce that risk of developing diabetes in the future? We also hear quite a bit about prediabetes really being underdiagnosed. Can you talk a little bit about that and how we can be better at understanding those numbers? Yeah. So it's, you know, what's hard is that there are very few symptoms of prediabetes. People don't feel bad. They don't feel sick. So they may not necessarily go and seek an evaluation for it. And that's a big part of it. We certainly, if you are already seeing a doctor and you're considered at higher risk for, for diabetes, you may get screened. But there are a lot of people and really we're talking about people in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s who aren't really engaging with healthcare because they feel fine. And so if you're not engaging, then you're not going to be screened. And that brings up an interesting point. Help us understand, is prediabetes the same as metabolic syndrome? Mm. It's a really good question. It's a slightly complicated answer. So prediabetes has a really exact definition, what we just talked about before. Metabolic syndrome is, whenever we say syndrome in medicine, it's where we've clustered together certain signs and symptoms. So metabolic syndrome certainly includes prediabetes in the definition, but includes a few other elements to get to metabolic syndrome. And part of the reason why it's tricky is that different organizations have used different definitions for metabolic syndrome. But speaking generally, it would be prediabetes and abnormal cholesterol or significant weight weight around your stomach. We call it abdominal obesity and it's measured by your waist circumference and high blood pressure. So having a few of these things in addition to prediabetes could help would make you have a metabolic syndrome. And what metabolic syndrome means, it means that you are at higher risk, not just for developing diabetes in the future, but for other cardiovascular disease. And then this takes me to helping us understand a little bit more around prediabetes, especially, you know, as it relates to diabetes. What are some of the causes mm. of prediabetes? So some of the risk factors for going on to develop prediabetes 
habits are some things you can control and some things you can't control. And so there are things like having a strong family history of type 2 diabetes really increases your risk. Having high blood pressure increases your risk or high cholesterol increases your risk. There are certain situations specific to women that increase the risk. So having a diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome or having had diabetes during your pregnancy, something called gestational diabetes, increases your risk. And then obesity. There are certain ethnic groups that are at higher risk as well. So Asians, Latinx, Black Americans, and Native Americans and Pacific Islanders have higher risk of going on to develop prediabetes and diabetes. And then is there something about the ethnicity that really puts people at high risk here? I mean, you know, because we hear about mm-hmm. it, but what what is it within right. that? that drives this higher rate. Right. So, you know, I mentioned there are these high-risk ethnic groups. And so if you kind of look at it from a very U.S.-centric approach, about 8% of the U.S. population has diabetes. And in general, individuals who are non-Hispanic, white, and Asians are about at that risk. But just to give you a sense of the numbers, South Asians in particular, so individuals who have who have backgrounds from India, Pakistan, or Bangladesh, up to 14%. Latinx individuals, 12%. Black individuals, 13%. There are a lot of reasons. If you look at for Asian Indians, some of it has to do with the way fat is distributed in the body. So often fat is more centrally located around the stomach. There are some really interesting theories about repeated exposure to starvation and famine resulted in this kind of starvation adaptation. And so people store fat so that in case there's starvation, they have sources. But when you get to an era where we have food easily available. It makes it easier to just store that extra fat. And we certainly know for East Asians, the risk of diabetes goes up even at BMIs we would think were normal. You know, we talk about BMIs of 18 to 25, but we actually have to screen for diabetes in Asian American individuals once the BMI reaches 23, specifically because of that fat distribution around the stomach and the abdominal organs. Well, to go back a second, what you mentioned about South Asians, I mean, I'm South Asian mm-hmm. myself, and, you know, I'm sort of thinking about this as well, and it, it, what seems like or sounds like to me was sort of more evolution mm-hmm. and being able to survive through that, but now in an era of abundance, it's sort of, you know, it, it's it's hurting the population, which takes me back to with diabetes, well, particularly prediabetes being so underdiagnosed. What are some other symptoms? So, of course, you mentioned the blood work being Mm -hmm. on top of that. But what are some other things that I can look out for, that we can look out for in terms of symptoms when it comes to prediabetes? Right. And and it's, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's part of the reason why it's underdiagnosed. People may have absolutely no symptoms. Sometimes people have no symptoms of diabetes, right? The one thing that people can look for is often with prediabetes, part of what's happening is people are resistant to insulin, the hormone that helps control the blood sugar. And so one thing that people can see when they look in the mirror is darkening of the skin. And it tends to be in the places where there are skin folds. So sometimes the back of the neck, in the underarms, in other skin folds, in the abdomen, around the elbow. We call it acanthosis. And it has to do with the way insulin reacts with skin cells. And so if you see that when you're looking in the mirror, it may be something to call to attention when you see your healthcare provider. But again, it's not present in everyone. And so 
okay, great. Correct. <laughs> also help us understand, is having prediabetes a sign of anything else along with it that may be more mm. severe? It kind of ties a little bit into your earlier question about metabolic syndrome. Often these things travel together. So the things that, that put you at risk for having prediabetes may be the similar things that put you at risk to having high blood pressure, high cholesterol, which puts you at higher risk for cardiovascular disease. And so unfortunately in chronic disease management, you have patients who pass and what people often with diabetes really struggle with is cardiovascular disease. And so we're trying to not get there. With, with the work that you are doing also within women's mm -hmm. health in particular, I want to draw attention to ask if there are any specific life stages or events in a woman's life that may cause the risk of developing mm -hmm. prediabetes. Yes. And it has to do with kind of, again, this metabolic picture. And so I take care of a lot of women with something called polycystic ovarian syndrome, which at its kind of core has to do with insulin resistance. And so women that have PCOS, that's how we abbreviate it, are at higher risk over the course of their lifetime to develop prediabetes and then diabetes. They are also at higher risk of developing something called gestational diabetes, which is a diabetes that only that happens in pregnancy. Not all women who, who developed gestational diabetes had PCOS. So any woman with a history of gestational diabetes is at very high risk to go on to develop prediabetes and diabetes. And another thing we sometimes don't think about as much is perimenopause and menopause, which is a time of hormonal shifts in a woman's body. It is a time where it is easier to gain weight. Again, it's not destiny, but you have to be able to figure out how do you battle against that? Because if you put on a lot of weight in that perimenopausal menopausal area, it again, obesity increases the risk of developing diabetes. So those are all places where when I am seeing my, my female patients, we really try to focus on, okay, what can we do now to modify risk in the future? Now, given your extensive experience in both research and clinical practice, what disparities do you see in the prevalence or severity of prediabetes among women, again, from different ethnic backgrounds? And if so, what factors do you think contribute to these disparities in these women? Yeah, I mean, I... I that's a, it's a big, it's a big question. And what I actually would really kind of say that I would focus on when we're really looking at disparities, especially in US-based healthcare, we are looking at disparities related to structural racism, to be quite frank. And so we are looking at what the disparities look like in set settings where you have low quality housing in high poverty tracks. You're looking at the presence of food deserts. You're looking at the absence of green space where you can go out and walk and exercise. You're looking at sidewalks that are cracked and unpaved. Really, I think part of what drives that disparity is are these social determinants of health that we are talking a lot more about. So it's not really people are coming to the clinic and they're being treated differently. It's just my experience of getting to drive to a grocery store that's two minutes from my house is very different than the experience of my patient in West Baltimore who has to take two buses to get to the grocery store and right now eggs are prohibitive. And so I think really it's important 
we tend to do a lot with all of these metabolic diseases to put a lot of blame on the individual when actually there are these big societal issues that impact how we eat, how we exercise, how we experience stress, and those all manifest in terms of these metabolic illnesses. And then can you speak a little bit to the, you know, when we're talking about the different ethnic mm-hmm. groups and what you're observing there, again, with the strong focus on women's health as well? So I think that what we tend to find is we see more diabetes and prediabetes in in Latina, South Asian individuals and black individuals. And so we do tend to, you know, when we're when we are thinking about screening, those those ethnic backgrounds are backgrounds where you will want to screen. And you will want to screen Asian women at a lower body mass index than you would want to screen, for example, a woman who is Latina, right? So sometimes if you're just looking at body mass index, you know, you need to look at the patient in front of you and recognize there's a huge movement. It's called screen at 23, which is screening for diabetes and metabolic disorders in Asian Asian individuals, women and men at a lower body mass index. So now let's switch gears and talk about reversal slash prevention. Mm-hmm. So one, is it possible to reverse prediabetes completely through lifestyle changes, medication, magic, any, any intervention? <laughs> I like magic. Sometimes we joke that we have a diabetes wand and we could just wave it. But 100% it can be reversed, right? And so that's why I always try to say, because people will sometimes come see me with prediabetes and they're really scared. And I tell them, it is not destiny, right? You, You really can. You have a lot of say in whether it progresses. So how do we know what studies do we have that show us we can reverse it? So there's a very well-known study, it's called the Diabetes Prevention Program, that looked at taking people with prediabetes and we put a group of them in an intensive lifestyle program, which was a 16-week program. We took another group and gave them a medicine called metformin, which is a drug to treat diabetes. And the third group, we did what we usually do, oh, go lose some weight and you know, let's see what happens. And they, they actually ended the study early at three years because there was such a significant impact. And what they found is that in the group that was doing intensive lifestyle changes, they helped them lose 7% of their body weight. So it's not a lot. If you're 200 pounds, it's just under 20 pounds. They did 150 minutes of exercise each week. And what they found was at after three years, only 14% of the people in intensive lifestyle went to go on to develop diabetes, whereas the people in the go lose weight category, 29% of them went to go on. So we really kind of cut that that development in half. Metformin also reduced the risk, but it was not as good for older individuals. So that's what I like talked about with my mother-in-law and father-in-law, like, nope, we're going to work on lifestyle. And the other thing to point out, though, is that I mentioned women who get diabetes in pregnancy. Metformin is actually very effective in preventing diabetes for them. So that's a program that is covered by Medicare. So any patient on a Medicare plan, you can you can sign up for one of these programs and you can kind of get all of this coaching and counseling that comes with it. So that's a structured program. We do know there are certain diets that have been proven to reduce that risk. One is the DASH diet, dietary approaches to stop hypertension. The other one is the Mediterranean diet. Both of these diets have a lot in common. 
it's a lot of fruits, it's a lot of veggies, it's whole grains, it's lean proteins, it's getting rid of the processed foods and the sweets. And and the Mediterranean diet in particular, which involves also olive oil and, and, and nuts, have actually shown that you can reduce your risk of diabetes eating that diet even if you don't lose weight. So the benefit is independent of the weight loss. There is something about that nutrient combination that seems to be beneficial. And then the big thing is exercise 150 minutes per week. It does not have to be, you know, some perception of exercise where you're running and sweaty and miserable. It is finding a really good girlfriend and going for a nice long walk with them in the morning and ending with a cup of coffee, right? You know, trying to get that exercise in is really key. And I also like your approach. So for instance, like we're a diabetes prevention program and we provide the program. And I also like your approach to say like, it doesn't have to be like this arduous thing where you're like, oh, exercise, I got to get on the treadmill or I have to go run. Or, it doesn't have to be that. It can be small, yes. very small steps, like you said, you know, g- grabbing someone, getting a cup of coffee, getting, you know, walking. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be very, very simple. What is the number one piece of advice or recommendation that you give to your patients, to women in particular, who come into your office to manage their risk of developing no. prediabetes? No. And, you know, a lot of times when I'm seeing women with this. They're at this stage in their life where they're both caring for children in their house and they're often caring for parents, right? You know, (laughs) my age. (laughs) And it's so hard, right? And what do you do? You are the lowest priority right? Because you need to take such good care of everyone. What I really try and do is I try to frame it in the sense that this is your caring for yourself, to making that time for yourself to prevent a diagnosis of diabetes is actually how you will be able to continue to provide good care to those two generations that you're in the middle of. And so I think recognizing it's an investment in your long-term health and the investment you put in now, not only will it save you grief in the future but all of the time you don't have to go to doctor's appointments in the future or have you know interventions in the future allows you to enjoy your good health so it is it is not selfish to take care of yourself it's actually really quite selfless the metaphor that I think of when you know when you say that is like you got to put the mask mm-hmm. on yourself yep. on the plane before you put it on someone else before you can help somebody else you got to help yourself 100 percent. 100 yep with that, Dr. Malik, we are toward the end of the episode at this point. I would like for listeners to know just how can they connect with you, learn more about your work. Yeah, so I think I told you, and this for any of your listeners that need to hear this, for me, mental health meant not having any social media. <laughs> So I don't, I don't have a great Twitter. I do not have Twitter. I do not have Facebook. I do not have any of those things. I have some academic publications. If you are in the Baltimore area, you know, I'm happy to see you. But yeah, so I'm not I'm not one of those like cool docs with <laughs> with links and websites. So my apologies. <laughs> no, that is completely fine. And what we will do though is we would love to get some of those publications and actually link sure. it up in the show notes. So in the show notes below, folks, you can find some of the research that was mentioned here, so that folks can certainly be directed over to that. With that, thank you so much, Dr. Malik. It was such a thank pleasure you. talking to you. To our listeners, head over to our social media. Hope you enjoyed this episode find this podcast post and share with us something that you did not know about pre-diabetes something that you learned about your own health 
month, perhaps. Get over to our social media, head over to Facebook, our Instagram, and find this podcast post and comment below, again, letting us know if there were some new insights that you learned about prediabetes as a result of this episode. Dr. Malik, we will email you and let you know what those insights are. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Thank this you was, so much this again. This was so much fun. Thank you. Thanks, Shireen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Yumlish podcast. Make sure to follow us on social media at Yumlish underscore on Instagram and Twitter and at Yumlish on Facebook and LinkedIn for tips about managing your diabetes and other chronic conditions and to chat and connect with us about your journey and perspective. You can also visit our website, yumlish.com, for more recipes, advice, and to get involved with all of the exciting opportunities Yumlish has to offer. If you like this week's show, make sure to subscribe so you can hear more from us every time we post. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time. Remember, your health always comes first. Stay well.